Genesis 22, let's pray one more time. Father, we ask for your help now. God, would you help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear your word, that we may be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the most difficult thing you've ever been asked to do? Let that sink in for a moment. What is the most difficult thing you've ever been asked to do? Maybe it included a difficult decision at work that involved a huge risk. Maybe even if you're in a position of having to terminate people. Maybe it was a decision you had to make for a loved one's medical care. Maybe it was even a decision you had to make to move and uproot your family just when it seemed that your kids were starting to settle in. And no, that's not me, just in case you were wondering. Each of us at some point will be asked to do extremely difficult things. Things that we would never have imagined we would be asked to do. Or things that feel like such a massive weight on our shoulders. Well, No matter what we may face in life, I'm not sure that anything could prepare us for the type of request that God made of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Let's read this passage together. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, uh, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Can you imagine, can you imagine facing the question or the request that Abraham faced? Can you imagine being asked to sacrifice your own 
son. And why in the world would God ask him to do such a thing? How could this be? Well, as we walk through this text together this morning, we're not only going to see why God made this request of him, but ultimately the message that God was sending his people as he made this request of him. This is a story of faith and a story of provision. Ultimately dominating this passage is this idea that God will provide, specifically in this case, God will provide for the sacrifice. It was also a test of Abram's faith. But even in the midst of this request and even in the midst of this test, being being tested like Abraham had never been tested before, what we see is that we can learn to trust God to provide for our deliverance. Even when such deliverance doesn't seem physically, humanly possible. We're going to walk through Genesis 22 together. We're going to look at three particular things from this passage that help us understand what God is doing. We're going to look, first of all, at a difficult test the test that Abraham faced. We're going to look at second at the trusting response that he gave. And third, we're going to see the miraculous provision that God granted. A difficult test, a trusting response, a miraculous provision. Let's walk through these together. First of all, we're going to look at a difficult test. Again, Abraham was asked to do something that would be the most difficult thing anyone could ever imagine. Sacrifice his son. Not only does it seem difficult because it was his own son, it was something that really seemed to go against the fabric of God's own character. I mean, think about this. God is asking Abraham to kill his son, to offer him as a burnt offering that required death. He's asking him to do this. But that just doesn't seem to make sense to us, especially when we consider other passages, even a passage before this. Historically, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where the Lord says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Jump ahead to to the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, where God clearly says, you shall not murder. So this request, really, not only is is it a dilemma in the fact that this is my own kid, But it's a dilemma in the fact that this seems to go against the very character of God. Not only that, one more thing makes this complicated. It seems to go against God's own command, but it also puts the promise that God had made into question. If you're not sure of of the backdrop of this story, let me just sort of bring you up to speed Abraham and his wife Sarah had been promised a son. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 in verse 3, this is where God calls Abraham out of of his land, out of his family, says, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And there in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, God tells Abram, I will make you a great nation, implying that there are going to be many descendants that come from him, and through Abraham this great promise of a nation of blessing will come. And so Abraham goes, he trusts God, and he goes. Well, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 15, there's, there's, no, there's no child. Okay, God, if you're going to bless me, you're going to make a great nation of me, does that not require children to be born? Well, certainly. Well, if you get to Genesis chapter 15, we see 
We see a continuation here. Verse 1 of Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What's going on? How's this going to work? Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The Lord makes a covenant with Abraham. He promises him that his descendants will be like the stars. And Abraham trusts him. He believes him. See, that elaborated further in the New Testament, especially in in Romans and Galatians. Well, Genesis 16, next chapter, still no child. God's made this promise. Still, there's still not a child. There's still not a child born. And so Abraham and Sarah take things into their own hands, and Abram ends up with a child through Sarah's servant, Hagar, Ishmael. And still, God says, you're not getting it, there's a lot there in that story, by the way. We just don't have time to this, this morning. You don't understand, Abraham. This is, this is not something I'm going to do through another. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to do it through Sarah. So in Genesis chapter 17, we come to that chapter. And speaking about Sarah in verse 16, he says this, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He laughed. We say, well, what's so funny? Because he's 99 years old and his wife is 90. You're putting it together, right? You're thinking, Abraham's thinking, how's this going to work? We're, we're aging a little bit. And things quit working when you get older. Just reality. But the Lord goes on to say, you shall bear a son and call him Isaac. I will establish with him an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And Isaac is born a short time later. God did what he said he would do. He made a promise, he fulfilled his word. And so we come to Genesis chapter 22 Especially in light of what is said in Genesis 17, I will establish with him an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Genesis 22, God's saying, go offer him as a burnt offering. And he's still a boy. He's not had kids. And so the promise seems to be in jeopardy here. How is this going to work? God, all of these years of waiting, all of these years of promise, finally you give us a son and now you're asking me to to kill him. The promise that Isaac would be the son through whom the covenant would flow and the command to kill him seemed to be in contradiction. However, there's a bit of information that you and I have that Abraham wasn't privy to. It's in verse 1. After these things, God tested 
Abraham. That word tested ought to put a little red flag up for you and I as readers of this account saying, okay, there's something behind this request. It's a test. We're not given any indication that Abraham had any clue that this was a test and only a test. But it was. Told him one in verse 1 that God was testing Abraham. And God often tests his own people. God is sovereign. That is his prerogative. And, and listen, God does not test his people just to mess with you. You know, sometimes I am guilty as a father of kind of messing with my kids. We don't call it provoking them to anger. We call it messing with them, right? <laughs> kind of picking at them a little bit. Trying to bring out the best in their character and, and train them well. God doesn't do that to his children. He doesn't mess with you just to mess with you. He will sometimes test you, not for his own sake, but for your sake. There's a big difference between what God does and what the evil one does. The, 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 the evil one, that Satan will tempt us. God never tempts us. God will test us. There's a big difference. Testing has a refining agenda, whereas tempting has a defeating agenda. God is all about refining us. God is all about shaping us, conforming us, making us to to be reflective of his own character. He wants the best for us, and he will often take us through very difficult paths in order to shape and mold us to what he wants us to be. So Abraham had a very difficult test, which leads to point number two, a, a trusting response. When I read this account, what what is just as amazing to me and perhaps alarming in some ways. As God's request to sacrifice Isaac is Abraham's response. Verse two, God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him as a burnt offering. Verse three does not read, so Abraham said, God, what are you thinking? Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that Abraham said, wait a minute. Are you out of your mind? I cannot even bear the thought of doing such a thing, much less taking taking that to its fullest extent. But rather we read verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He responds immediately. The very next morning, we're not even given, this is, we're not told this, but we're not even given indication that Sarah was aware of all the details of what was going on. Immediately, Abraham responds. That's just as amazing to me as, as the request. God says, go offer him as a burnt offering. Abraham, Abraham it seems, says, okay. Without hesitation, he acts upon the instructions that God had given him. And he departs the very next morning to travel to the place God had instructed. Just think about that. It was a three-day journey. Imagine those three days on the back of that donkey. I'm not just talking about the comfort of the ride. I'm talking about the turmoil in Abraham's own heart. Three days to think about where you were going and what you have been asked to do. I can't can't even imagine the burden and the turmoil in Abraham's own mind. But he continues on. And even once they arrive there in verses 4 through 6, you see Abraham still... He does not delay. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Come again to you. Again, no delay. 
obedience. But as Abraham and Isaac prepare to go to the mountain, little Isaac speaks up. He's starting to put some things together. Verse 7. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, actually the Hebrew says, Yo, dad, something's missing here. My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, check. But where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And as a dad, I can't imagine looking into the eyes of my own son, knowing I had to answer that kind of question. Yet Abraham does. In verse 8, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they continue on. John Calvin said this in relation to this passage. He said, this is an example for imitation. In such straits, the only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us where there is none. And he goes on to say, we pay him, God, the highest honor when in our affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. Abraham did not know when and he did not know how, but he knew God would not forsake his promise and that God would be faithful to provide. The faith that Abraham displays here is the same kind of faith that we see highlighted in James chapter 2 in the New Testament. In James chapter 2, verse 18, James says, But someone will say, Well, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And it's interesting in James chapter 2 because the very next verse he actually gives an illustration of what this kind of faith looks like and he goes back to Genesis chapter 22 as his example. There's not a disconnect between faith and works. We are saved by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone, I think the reformers used to say. It's a faith that is active. And so in verses 19 of chapter 2 of James, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. The scripture is fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Again, you see that faith is... Not just some kind of fuzzy feeling we have in our own hearts, but it's demonstrated through our actions. It's what we see here in Genesis chapter 22. Either we take God at his word or we don't. And when we do take God at his word, it will demonstrate itself in how we respond to his word. Not only was Abraham convinced that God would provide, he was convinced that he and Isaac would return from the mountain together. Did you see that in verse 5? 
Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Implied in that is we will come again to you. Friends, this should inform our own crises of faith. It should inform our own posture when things seem to be beyond what we expect. God is faithful to his promises and we can trust him to keep his word even when everything around us seems to be falling apart. Even when everything around us just seems to be so out of a line, we can trust the fact that God is faithful to his word. Abraham fully trusted God to provide. So much so that he bound his son Isaac to the altar and then he began to even reach for his knife. Friends, I'm convinced that Abraham was fully prepared to kill his son. Some will say, well, he knew what was going to happen, so he really wasn't planning. He was just going through the motions. I don't believe that at all. He was going to kill his boy. He didn't know how it was all going to work out, but he was, he was, he was simply being obedient God is faithful to his promise to provide, and Abraham trusted him to do that, even when he didn't know how it was going to happen. And as he reached for that knife, the angel of the Lord steps in and says, wait just a minute, which leads me to the third point, a miraculous provision. Look at verses 11 through 14. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Can you imagine the relief? Just went through Abraham's whole posture at that point. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. There's a lot going on here in this passage. Certainly there's a lot going on that's that's informing us of the the kind of faith that Abraham had and the test that God was performing with him to confirm that faith, to strengthen that faith. At just the right time, in just the right way, God provided the sacrifice that would take the place of Isaac and still satisfy God's requirement for the burnt offering. Notice again the text. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The picture you see here is that God demanded an offering. The son was about to be the offering. And at the right time, at the last minute, at the right time, God provided a substitute to take the place of his son. A ram dies so that Isaac can live. This story would be recorded later on by Moses so that the people of God would hear it. That's why you see in verse 14... As it is said to this day, it's a story that's being recounted to the people of God later on in history. As Moses now leading the people out of Egypt, most likely, I'm sure they were very familiar with this text. And even when they heard it, would be reminded of their own deliverance that took place in Egypt, was 
which, which had some similar themes running there. Remember, the, the people of God were in Egypt, they were enslaved, they were in bondage. And God was about to bring judgment upon the land because of all of the chaos and, and, and sin that was there. But the Israelites were instructed to take a lamb without blemish, slaughter it, and put some of the blood on their doorpost. Because what was about to happen is the angel of the Lord is about to come through, and all of the firstborn from every family, even the, of the animals, was going to be taken, going to be killed as a form of judgment upon the land. God said to his people, listen, if you will take a lamb, slaughter it, spread some of the blood over the doorpost, when the angel of death comes through that night and kills all of their firstborn, those homes, those families that are covered by that blood, slaughtered by that perfect lamb, will be spared. Again, a lamb had to die so that some could live. You see the pattern. The Old Testament sacrifices. We're told that the people of God were instructed to offer two lambs daily as a burnt offering for their own sin. Again, lambs dying. It's a testimony so that others could live. And then when we get to the New Testament, that famous phrase from John 3.16 that everyone knows rings so clearly in our ears now, but, but, but maybe, maybe a little bit more complete with the backdrop of Genesis 22 ringing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The same son was the one whom John the Baptist would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Abraham was about to give his only son. Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, when all things were right from God's perspective, he sent forth the son, the lamb of God, who would be ultimately killed so that others could live. At just the right time, in just the right way, God provided what was needed. Same is true with Abraham. What we see here in Genesis 22 is a testimony of faith, certainly, but we also see a picture, a foreshadow, if you will, of what would ultimately be accomplished in Jesus Christ. We see this foreshadow both in who Jesus would be and what he would accomplish. In his person, we see that Jesus is the true promised son of Abraham. And just as Isaac's birth was the supernatural work of God, so it was with Jesus. And even though Isaac was not physically killed, Hebrews 11 verse 19 says that he died and was raised figuratively. He was laid on the altar and, and, and was raised, if you will. Hebrews eleven nineteen says that was a figurative way of referring to that event. But Jesus... The true and greater son of Abraham was sacrificed, raised, and returned to his father. His work. Genesis 22 not only sets the stage 
for how God would provide for Abraham and Isaac, but how he would provide for all his covenant people through the work of a substitute. Tim Keller puts it this way. He said, Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. I want you to consider something for a moment. Consider for a moment what would have happened had there been no substitute. You say, well, Isaac would have died. He would have. Think about, for our own sake, what would be the case had there been no substitute for us? You say, well, maybe God would have Saved us a different way. I want to remind you, friends, that God is a just God. And by no means will he overlook the sins of people. He's a just God who will and must punish our sin. He does not simply turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not there. We're told clearly from the scriptures that he will hold us accountable. That we will have to stand and give account for our our sin. That we were made in his image. He created us. And originally we were in a perfect world, perfect people, but we chose to rebel against him. And now there's this curse, there's there's this pending judgment that's waiting upon us. I know people don't like to hear that today and talk about that. It's reality. We've rebelled against the perfect creator of the world, and he has said there is ramifications for that eternally. And because he is a good judge... I know there's probably not a lot of those left in the world today, but he's not just good, he's perfect. And he will always do what is right. And if he was simply to look at a, a, a condemned person and say, well, you know what, let's just, let's just overlook it. He would no longer be good or just. But Jesus came and willingly gave himself as a substitute to die in our place so that the full punishment for our sin could be absorbed upon his shoulders. Friends, this is huge. Listen to me. Jesus' death was not simply a sacrifice that made salvation possible. Jesus' death was a sacrifice that made salvation actual. He actually took the place of sinners. He died in your stead. He died in your place. He died for your lust, your greed, your pride, your envy, your selfishness. He took that upon himself because you deserved the judgment that God was going to give towards that. But he stood in your place and he absorbed all that full weight of of wrath and judgment, taking your guilt upon himself. This is huge. 
And friend, if you're here today and you've been living a life void of an understanding of that truth, then I would just ask you to pray to God to give you an understanding of what this means for you. Not only pray for that knowledge, but pray for the desire to trust in that substitutionary work that Jesus accomplished. He died for people like you. He died so that you could be set free from your own sin, so that you could know Him. Yes, you're, you're a mess. Welcome. We're all a mess. We, we're a mess. We, we dress up and kind of put on a nice show internally. We are chaotic. But Jesus died for our chaos. He died for our sin so that he will slowly rebuild us and make us more and more like him. It's a beautiful perspective. And, and, and we, none of us deserve it. That's why we call it grace. It's a beautiful thing. If you've not known this grace, if you've not known this, this, this reality of Jesus taking your place, then plead to God to give you that understanding. Friends, this world is a broken place. It's broken for a reason. Because we rebelled against the Creator. But the Creator is so good that He, he didn't say, okay, if that's the way you're going to have it, forget you. He said, if that's the way you're going to have it, I'm going to pursue you. And I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you new. This is the only hope this world has. The only hope this world has is in the finished work of Jesus Christ who gave himself for sinners. This is why he came. This is why there was a baby born in Bethlehem. The babe in Bethlehem was born to die and be raised so that we could have hope. Now some people get that. And some people, some people understand parts and pieces to this story. Most people in the world, even non-Christians, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, even you get this. You know something's not right in this world. Something's broken. Something's amiss. Something's wrong. People just don't go and slaughter people for, for, for any particular reason other than something's broken. We get this part, but what we often try to do is we realize that something's broken and we realize that even in our own heart something's broken and something is amiss and so we try to do a self-fix. We try to repair things ourselves. We try to work on things ourselves. Okay, I know that I'm not what I should be so I'm gonna try to make it better. We try to, to make our way better to God and the fact is no matter how hard you try, you're not going to make yourself perfect. But if you will simply yield to the one who is perfect, and if you will simply yield to the one in faith who died for people just like you, and trust in him, knowing that he forgives you of all your sin, and he has promised to make you a new creation, that's where your hope is. Not in any kind of self-attempt to fix yourself, but in trusting in the one who can transform you. We either understand the idea of substitution and yield to it, or we fall into the deceptive trap of self-salvation. Recognize God's provision and trust in that. And friend, if you're here today and you've, you've received the blessing of God's saving work through Jesus, you've trusted in him, you know you're a Christian, you're walking in faith, you're striving to, to please him with your life. Listen, for many of us as Christians, we need to quit living a life 
as if there were no substitute. We need to quit living as if we are still Isaac bound on the altar and there's no hope beyond us. Friend, we've been set free and another has taken our place. So our response as Christians, we ought to be living lives of gratitude to God. We ought to be grateful people, amazed, humbled people. Our lips ought to be ever full of His praise. Our actions, even towards others, ought to be seasoned with grace because we have one who took our place. Christ, our substitute, changes everything. Everything. See, the light in this shadow set the stage. What Genesis chapter 22 does is it sets the stage for a greater substitute to come. And not only one who would merely save one person, but this substitute that would come would be one that would save nations. One of my favorite books is a little book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, this book is an excellent resource that shows for children and really for adults. The whole point of the Bible is about Jesus. And yes, I used the Jesus Storybook Bible for sermon preparation this week. In that storybook Bible, the story of Abraham and Isaac is summarized in the book, the book summarizes many of the stories of the Bible and, and it shows how it points to Jesus. And, and as Sally Lloyd-Jones finishes this story, after talking about how Abraham took his son Isaac and what God was asking him to do and providing him as a sacrifice and then providing the ram there at the last minute, this is how she concludes with that, that story. She said, many years later, another son would climb another hill carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, He would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? He was God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the Lamb of God. Friend, this son, Jesus Christ, has come into the world. But when he came into the world, There was no substitute for him. There was no need for one because he was perfect. But rather, he was the substitute for us. Because of his sacrifice, because of his death, you and I can live. And that is the hope that we have. Because of what Christ has done, we can have life. Friends, you might be asked to do some difficult things in this life, but there will be nothing that will ever trump the Father sacrificing His perfect Son so that sinners could know Him and live with Him forever. God has done this. Christ has paid the price. Christ is our ransom. Christ is our substitute. Trust in Him. Rejoice in Him. Walk in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the truth that we see and the story, there's so much here, Lord. There's so much to be pondering. And Father, I'm grateful that when we consider your word and consider the Old and New Testament and consider how you have, have written this, 
this one story from Genesis to Revelation. Father, you've not left us without witness to the work that you have done. Lord, you have so clearly taught us. You've so clearly demonstrated your love for us. You've so clearly shown yourself gracious, kind, and good. God, the fact is, is that we are, we are all sinners. God, we all have fallen short of your glory. We all stand worthy of your condemnation. But Father, we thank you that you were not satisfied to see people condemned, but Lord, that you longed not to bring judgment, but to bring hope, to bring deliverance, to bring forgiveness, to reconcile us to yourself. Even, Lord, when we turned our back against you, you never turned your back against us. But you have pursued us. And you are calling people to yourself even, even today. Father, you've called people to yourself throughout the ages because of what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, because of his death, we now can live. Because of his sacrifice, we can be pardoned and set free. God, I pray that everyone in this room would know the joy of that truth. That everyone in this room would not only know that joy, but Lord, that they would be walking in that joy. God, there are people in this room right now, Christian people in this room, they're, they're just miserable. They're, they're walking throughout life just, just trying to, to get through another day. God, would you remind us this morning of what you have done for us? Would you remind us of the grace that you have extended to us? And help us to see how great your love is. God, there may be men and women in this room, boys and girls, who they hear this and they realize that, they, that their life is broken, that their life is filled with chaos and sin, and they have they've tried to clean themselves up so many times. God, would you help them to see Would you help them to see that there was one who came and gave himself for people just like them? That there is one who will perfectly cleanse them. There is one that will perfectly clothe them in righteousness if they would simply put their hope and trust in him. God, would you move in our hearts today? Would you help us to be a people filled with joy because of what you have done through Jesus Christ? Thank you, Father, for what you've done. We praise you and honor you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.